Welcome to the Association of Insurance Compliance Professionals podcast. AICP serves the insurance compliance community by promoting relationships, exchanging information, and providing learning opportunities within a dynamic regulatory environment. You're listening to What is Compliance? with your host, Bree Dahl, president of AICP. We are excited to welcome today's guests, Holly Blanchard and Lee Davidson. Holly Blanchard is the president of Regulatory Insurance Advisors, LLC, a consulting firm specializing in insurance regulatory matters and enterprise risk management. Holly formed RIA in January 2016, along with her partner, Peter Williams. In her role, Holly provides services for state and federal regulators and insurance carriers and oversees a team of dynamic individuals that provide exceptional regulatory guidance and consulting for their clients. Lee Davidson joined Berkeley Accident and Health in 2010 and is currently the Senior Vice President, Traditional Stop Loss. At Berkeley, Lee has the responsibility for the P&L of the Traditional Stop Loss segment, which includes sales, underwriting, account servicing, and claims. Lee has more than 35 years of insurance industry experience in a variety of product lines and roles within an insurance company. Prior to joining Berkeley, Lee was Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer for the Hanover Insurance Group. Lee has also served in various roles within the AICP, including national president. Holly, Lee, I am so thankful and appreciative for you agreeing to join me for this conversation today so that we can talk about what is compliance. Um, We know from our years of experience that working in insurance, it's a heavily regulated industry and we understand what compliance is, but people coming into insurance or into um, a compliance department may not have a really good understanding of what compliance is. So I wanted to start our conversation today really high level and just ask each of you for what is your perspective on compliance? What is it? How, how does it fit into what we do and how important is it? Holly, we can start with you. All right, I'll start. Thanks, Bree. Um, I think one of the things about compliance, or when I think about compliance, compliance is in a simple, from a simple perspective, is just doing the right thing and doing what you're supposed to do. Um, I'm a regulator by trade, so if, from a regulatory perspective, it's really incorporating consumer protections to make sure that you're not just looking out for the financial aspect of your company, but you're also looking out. We're doing the right thing for the consumers and for, for protecting consumers. So, okay. So for people who might not be familiar with what we do, you say you're a regulator by trade. What does that mean? So every state has a department of insurance, whether it be a department of commerce, a department of regulatory oversight, anything like that. But every state has a department that is tasked with overseeing the insurance industry, because let's face it, insurance is very, very complicated. And so the consumer protections are monitored by these departments of insurance. So I work closely with the departments of insurance to go out and audit audit companies to make sure that they're actually doing what they're supposed to. So that's it in a nutshell. Okay. Um, Lee? To you, what is compliance? Well, thank you for uh, having me here, and and, uh, I hope all is well with everybody. So to me, compliance is, uh, you know, from a business side, is paying attention to details. Uh, This business insurance is is highly transactional. All that we do, 
uh, is driven by various individual transactions. And as Holly said, those transactions are regulated. There's laws out there that basically say how you can quote a policy, how you can issue a policy, how you can pay a claim, how you collect premium. All those transactions, each state has its own rules on how you do that. And, and compliance is making sure you pay attention to the details, that you do what the state expects you to do. Right. So from Lee's perspective, he's incorporating those areas of, of compliance. From my perspective, I'm actually looking to make sure he's incorporating them appropriately. I love the perspective. Um, and so Lee, you you mentioned paying attention to the details. I, I think we've probably had more than one conversation about how the details can get you into trouble. Um, do you guys both want to take a minute and and maybe give some examples or explain what that means? Um, you know, trouble for us. What what does that look like? Sure, I can take that. Um, I'll start, Lee, and I'm sure that you have plenty of other information to kick in. <laughs> so let me give you some examples. I think from a regulatory perspective, one of the biggest problems that we see with insurance carriers is oversight of their TPA, their third-party administrators. So a lot of insurance companies hire TPAs to do certain things on their behalf. So process claims, you do a call center, anything like that. Um, what we see a lot of is lack of oversight of those TPAs. And so the TPAs can run completely afoul of the regulatory requirements and even the company requirements. Um, so there, that, there becomes a compliance issue there because there's obviously a liability and exposure where the consumer can be harmed, but also the company can be harmed. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, TPAs, any third party vendor that you might use to help you, whether it's to, again, issue policies, quote policies, pay claims, uh, you know, they have to do it as if they were you. They're subject to the same rules and they'll hold, the regulators will hold the company responsible for what that third party, that vendor does on their behalf. Um, and while the TPA might get in trouble, the carrier is really going to be held accountable. And, and accountable, it, just to you know, kind of go where Holly's going here, is you might have to refund premium, uh, make someone whole, pay a claim that you denied. Uh, and then you might get fined, right? They might penalize you to, to really make sure you're paying attention to the details, making sure that you as a company take regulation and adherence to that regulation seriously. Well, and I think another thing that can happen that is I mean, the fines are, are bad and paying a claim and everything else, a, a subsequent claim or reconsidering a claim, that's bad, but there's brand tarnishment. So we all have heard of companies that haven't necessarily done the right things. And so it, there's reputational risk involved also, which can be very detrimental to companies. Very much so. I mean, people make decisions on reputation, right? When you think about branding and, and you know, think of when you buy auto insurance, when I think of insurance and people that don't work in the industry and, and they feel like they don't understand insurance, but yet they have a homeowner's or a renter's policy, they have an auto policy, uh, a health insurance policy, dental policy. And, and so... Um, you know, when they make a decision as to who I want to do business with, reputation is important. If they see an article in the newspaper that says XYZ company did something bad and harmed these consumers, that, that, that consumer is going to think twice about buying that policy from that company. Right. Absolutely. Well, and let's be honest, in the society that we live in, we all have instant access to this information. If my insurance carrier isn't paying a claim correctly or I feel like I've been wronged, um, I wouldn't, I, well, I personally would hesitate, but some people wouldn't hesitate to get on social media and talk about this and, and it snowballs. So there's, um, so, you know, it perpetuates itself. So that reputational risk is, is real and can compound exponentially. 
Well, yeah. And Holly, you bring up social media. Um, and that kind of takes me in another direction where I don't think, uh, in, in my role or in your role or in Lee's role that we necessarily think about marketing and advertising as much as, as the marketing and advertising people do, but as an insurance company, even our marketing and advertising is heavily regulated and we have to hold ourselves in compliance with all sorts of rules on how and who we advertise to. Absolutely. When we do a market conduct exam, that's one of the first things that we do is get online and see what kind of complaints there are about a company or see how, what they're, how they're marketing their products, see who they're targeting, um, see and see if there's any kind of misrepresentation or any misleading information in their advertising. One of the, one of my, just to add on to that, one of my rules at the company I work for, the previous companies I've worked for from a marketing perspective is pretty simple. Do what you say, say what you do. And if you stick to that rule from a marketing perspective, you won't get in trouble. Again, provided what you do and how you say it is in conformity with the rules. Um, and again, there's a lot of rules out there. So it it's, requires a team of people to make sure they're on top of all the rules. And, and quite honestly, uh, like any company, any business, uh, you know, there's humans working and humans make mistakes. They read things incorrectly. They push the wrong button. In our business, that can cause us uh, issues down the road. And on top of that, when you are, you know, you know, I'm old enough that I remember before computers were a big part of the business that we're in here in the insurance business today. Wait, 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 wait. There was a world where computers didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cell phones, you know, you think your cell phone is just now more powerful than computers were 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It's, it's, it's amazing. Where 10 it's come. years ago. But you think today in, in, the, in the old days, if an underwriter or a claims person transposed a number and made an error, it was one error. Now, if that same individual is a programmer and they program something in reverse, again, transpose two numbers, now you might have 10,000 errors, 100,000 errors, a million errors. And so it just shows how important, while technology has made things easier uh, from a transactional perspective, it makes it more important that you're paying attention to those details. Well, and Lee, I think that that is a great point. We're currently doing an exam on a company who had their claims um, reimbursements programmed wrong since 2011. And so we got in and we're looking at the claims payments and recognize that there's problems. It just isn't adding up. It doesn't make sense. And recognized also then, you know, delving deeper into it, we recognize that this company's programming had been off for almost 10 years, which means that they had not been paying claims correctly for 10 years. And so that has got the attention of the Department of Insurance, but also of the NEIC, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners um, that coordinates with all states. So now all states are suddenly like, wait a second, if you're not paying correctly in this particular state, you're probably not paying correctly in, in our state also. So, so that, that, just simple programming error is going to compound a lot of issues for this poor company. And even if you go, you know, in, 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 in my role, I try to balance the compliance versus the business needs. So from a business perspective, put the regulation aside. If you program rating on, you under program your rating. In other words, you, you need to charge a dollar. Your actuaries say you need to charge a dollar in order to make your margin, pay your expenses and pay claims. But your programmer does it in a way that charges 75 cents you will go out of business. You'll go bankrupt. At the same time, if you 
put it in at a dollar and a quarter, you won't be competitive. You won't write enough business. It's so important, even beyond the regulatory side of it, that you get it right, that you have controls in place to ensure that that what you're doing is what you want to do. Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, here's the thing. What you're saying is really important from the perspective of bringing it back directly to compliance and bringing it full circle is this means that you have to have very strong internal monitoring and a very strong compliance department that's looking for these things and identifying these things before the regulators come in and identify that this has been a problem for 10 years. So those strong compliance divisions and your internal audit are critical to making sure that your business operations are operating as they should be. Oh, I agree. Yeah, and I want to I want to go back to Holly, you brought up you brought up the NAIC and, and I think that that's a really great segue, um, to explain a little bit more, um, being, being an insurance, we, we all know, we understand, we value, and I think most of us fight and advocate for the state-based system that we have. I, I think as an industry, insurance is unique in that there isn't a lot of federal oversight, and it does go to the states. Um, so I I want to talk to you guys a little bit more about uh, the difference between complying with any federal regulations and then what it what it means to have that state based system and what it looks like to comply with fifty different regulations for the same product. Sure, absolutely. Well, and like we talked about, insurance is very very complex. And Bree is right that there that this oversight for insurance falls to the states. That's where the state departments come into play. Um, and this was created because each state has very, very different, unique marketplaces. So I'm in Nebraska. So what's impactful to Nebraska may not be impactful to Massachusetts or, or Washington. Um, so it's created so that each state can regulate and grow their own insurance marketplace. Um, so, but in order to coordinate that, there is an entity called the NEIC, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. And the NEIC acts as a coordinating body for the states. They don't have any legal authority, but what they do is they bring all the states together and the territories also, the U.S. territories, um, to talk about current problems, current issues. How do we solve these current issues? Um, and they develop and create model law. They, they develop white papers and then they develop model laws, which in turn turns out to be state statutes. So basically these model laws are created so that everybody has some sense of uniformity in their regulation and then states modify it to whatever their marketplace is. So it eliminates you having 50 just wild, wildly opposite um, requirements and it, it lends to some uniformity, but there's still some very, very state specific requirements. And that's why compliance is very complicated. And if you think about, you know, to even take one step back and think about how a law is made, right? It's the state legislature, right? It's, it's the people you vote for in your state elections that really determine how is the insurance marketplace going to work in that particular jurisdiction? Most insurance departments don't have the rights to make laws. They're really there to, you know, enforce laws. And so the legislature and so states, you know, most legislatures, you know, while they care, and I'm, I'm in Massachusetts, you know, we care what Nebraska does, but Massachusetts is going to do what Massachusetts thinks is best for its citizens. Well, and I think that's a great point because we're seeing some of that right now. 
um, that, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act was enacted um, 10 years ago, and, and now its future is in the hands of um, the Supreme Court. So you're absolutely right, Lee, that these laws and regulations are fluid and they can change and it depends on who your legislators are and everything else. So, yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And, and think about it this way, too, as you think about if the law changes and, and the legislature says, hey, and, and, and this happens, they pass a law in November that becomes effective January 1st. You're an insurance company. You have 10,000 employees. Now you've got to change your systems, your marketing materials, uh, your policies and everything for that law effective 1-1. It's difficult. And so, you know, you know, sometimes you do fall behind the, the ball. Right. Well, I think um, this this environment is some is a great example of that, because with COVID and the COVID relief packages that have been required for insurance companies, both health insurance carriers and property and, com- and casualty carriers have 200 plus subregulatory guidance that has come out and requirements that have come out for COVID and what they have to do in, in response to COVID. So these are things that, and every state has been different. There's been some consistencies, but every state has been different. And some of them, some of these requirements sunsetted, which means they, they ended in October. Um, some of them carry through the next year. So some of them started in March and ended in May. So the timeframes are all over the place also. So from a compliance perspective, it's a lot to just grasp and to get your hands on. And, it, and, and there's a lot of moving parts and, and, you know, and, and that's going to be fluid also as we continue in this situation and as cases continue to expand or, or, or contract, whatever, um, you're going to see different requirements. So, yeah, you have to always be on top of those. And, and you raised just a, an awesome point, which is and insurance departments do this, commissioners, uh, deputy commissioners. Um, you think about a hurricane, a tornado, a COVID, you know, those are jurisdictional and, and some states will pass an emergency regulation, emergency bulletin saying this particular area has been hit by a hurricane. Don't cancel people's policies for non-payment, extend your claim payment times. In other words, they react immediately. So the compliance department's job is to make sure they get a hold of those bulletins and they inform their staff of the new rules or the temporary rules that are in that jurisdiction. And for COVID, we had, a, a, you know, 35, 40 states come out with their own rules for their own jurisdictions about how to react to these businesses being, uh, you know, shut down and people working from home, and how to how to make sure that you, as an insurance company, are going to, you know, work with the department and work with your customers to make sure that they're uh, kept whole as best they can be. Right. Absolutely. Well, and you know, to make sure, I think another point in that is to make sure that the customers are kept whole and protected, but also to protect the insurance companies because we all have a strong, viable market. So if the insurance companies fail, then you're losing those protections that you have counted on for so many years, too. So it's it's really um, it really is just bolstering the entire marketplace. Holly, I feel like you're reading today because the next thing that I kind of wanted to go into was company solvency. And (laughs) so uh, I, I think consumer protection and consumer advocacy is one of the the more public facing aspects of the regulatory entities. Um, I think company solvency is equally as important. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what the regulators do to ensure company solvency as well as the consumer protection that we've already talked about? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and financial solvency is really interesting because it's a little more black and white than the customer, the customer protections. Um, so each company, 
carrier is required to file their financial reports with the states um, that shows kind of their market penetration, where the majority of their claims are being paid, what product lines they're selling. So they have financial statements that are very, very onerous and very comprehensive. <clears throat> um, so they submit those to the states. The states review those to see if there's any identified concerns. And this is kind of an ongoing review. States are always watching the financial solvency of carriers because you want to have, again, that robust marketplace where consumers have options and choices. So um, there's different tracking mechanisms that the NEIC and that the states have that can tell them if a company is maybe getting in trouble. Like if you see a sudden uptick in claims denials, a significant amount of claims denials, that might mean that the company is not able to pay their claims on a regular basis or as they should. So that gets attention. Um, if you suddenly see a complaint of premiums are not being returned timely, stuff like that, things like that get attention because that shows that maybe there's some financial concerns there. So states um, always have, states have a financial regulation division that's constantly monitoring areas for this, uh, for, for compliance and to make sure that there's no problems of, say, if a carrier purchases, if there's a merger and acquisition between carriers, the states oversee that merger and acquisition to make sure that, first of all, there's the, the risk is, is acceptable and that the companies aren't putting themselves in financial hazard. So there's a lot of mechanisms in place to make sure that companies succeed financially, because, again, we want that robust marketplace. And we, a little bit more from the company side, maybe, um, in, in practical application, what does company solvency look like? Well, I mean, I think when I think of company solvency, I, you know, it, it's, you know, there's so much that goes into that, right? It's pricing your products correctly, right? Up on the upfront, right? You need to make sure uh, your, your, your actuaries are pricing your products to cover your expenses, cover your claim costs, and put in whatever margin you need to, to make for that particular product. And then operationally, you need to be consistent in how you operate that product, especially on the claim side. Your actuaries take some uh, certain assumptions into play uh, on the claim side and on what claims are going to get paid. And quite honestly, not every claim gets paid. Some claims get denied, as we all know. And uh, it's important that companies have good procedures, right? And compliance is, is more, uh, I think most companies would say more than just adhering to regulation. It's also making sure that you have good business practices across the enterprise and that uh, there's consistency and there's checks and balances, right? It's, it's much about checks and balances as about anything else. So to me, one of the things that like bringing it all together, the consumer protection, the company solvency at its core, it's really about creating a healthy marketplace for everybody. Um, would you guys agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the companies that are the best companies and that are in it for the long haul aren't the companies that have entered into business to make a ton of money. I mean, obviously profitability is, is your driving factor, but these are companies that recognize that they want to do the right thing. They want to create protections, consumer protections, um, business protections, whatever, whatever you're being insured for. It's an indemnification, um, but it gives people choices. It gives them, it gives them additional layers of protection that they wouldn't necessarily need. So those companies that have that compliance mentality are really the ones that we see are the most successful because they are trying to always do the right thing. Okay. Again, you're reading my mind because my next question is, can you guys explain like from your unique perspectives, what is a compliance mentality? <laughs> <laughs> 
actually, I'll at least start with this one since I've talked so much. No, I mean, I think, you know, <laughs> compliance mentality, it starts at the top, but it, it doesn't stay at the top. It's something that a company, you know, it's part of their culture, right? That, you know, paying attention to details, having the right checks and balances, doing the right thing, right? I think, uh, you know, um, Holly said that earlier, right? A good company does the right thing. It doesn't mean pay a claim that is otherwise not covered. Fraud is a, a big part of what we do, you know, what we have to deal with in the insurance business, making sure that you're not paying fraudulent claims, that you have the proper uh, practice in, is in place. But, it, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's a culture of doing the right thing and it's throughout the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, just, I think to say that it's doing the right thing probably sums up everything about compliance. And you'll see that with, with, companies who, and, and you're rightly, it definitely starts at the top. It, it's a mentality coming from the CEO, the C-suite down, where the CEO will say, what is the best thing for our consumers? Not necessarily what's the best thing for our shareholders, what's the best thing for our financial pocketbook, what's the best thing for our consumers and or our customers? Um, and so, and then how do you do the right thing by our customers? And you're right, it doesn't mean that you pay everything. It doesn't mean that you just you you don't mind your own your own policies and procedures. It means making the right decisions for both the marketplace and the customers. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to add on to that, setting expectations, right? So with your customers, your customers setting expectations. This is what you're buying. This is what we're mm-hmm. charging you for. And that way you set that expectation. So, you know, whether it's a renewal or a premium issue, a claim issue, you know, it's companies that don't set those expectations, whether it's fuzzy marketing um, or, you know, it's, the, you know, bait and switch. And there are companies. That's why we need regulators. There's bad companies out there. They do bad things. And, and you know, I've been a member of this industry for a long time and I've seen bad companies come and go. And, and, and what I'll say is bad companies don't last long. They don't stay in business long, but they give us all a bad name, right? The insurance industry doesn't have a, a you know, I mean, <laughs> reputationally, uh, and unfortunately, it's a few bad actors that, uh, you know, kind of tarnish the whole industry and, and why we need regulators, honestly. And, and it's, you know, what I, what I want to say from an industry side is we need regulators and regulators are, are, are a partner ours. They're not an adversary in any way, right? Compliance does better when it, when it works with regulators, not against them. Right. It's, it is. And you're, you're absolutely right. I think people believe that there's this us versus them mentality with regulators and companies, and that's just not necessarily the case. There are bad actors out there, and that's what regulators are doing is kind of weeding out those bad actors. But really, again, everybody wants, it's, it's, it's pivotal for everybody to want and need a very strong marketplace. Um, so, so that means making sure that everybody's doing the right thing, that companies are staying solvent, making sure that those consumer protections are in place and also making sure that consumers have choices. That's so important, um, in the marketplace and in, in the free marketplace. Right. So I think that's, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're 100% correct. And, and you, you think about that, you know, we've talked earlier around, you know, having a, a free marketplace, a vibrant marketplace. And w- what defines a vibrant marketplace from my perspective, having a lot of competitors. I want lots right. of competitors, right? It keeps rates in line. It keeps your actions in line. So if regulators go overboard, and that includes the legislatures and they enact laws that make it difficult for companies to perform or make money in a particular jurisdiction, a particular line of business, they'll leave. And then you let you end up with less opportunity, less competition, which means consumers have less ability to go out and shop for coverage. And, and that's not good for, for us. It's not good for them. Right. Well, I want to give you guys, I think we've covered just about everything that I thought about and wanted to cover. I want to give you guys an opportunity to 
give us any final thoughts you might have that you feel like just burning things that you need to share about insurance compliance? (laughs) (laughs) When I say it, it's like burning questions or burning topics and insurance compliance, insurance compliance it, it, we work in like the the depths, the deepest depths of insurance. Um, it's I think it's overwhelming to most people. So uh, it's it's been interesting being able to listen to us talk about it at a little more high level. Uh, I th- we are in the weeds, people. So getting back to the basics of just what it is and why we do it is really really important. Well, I, I, I'll start with this. And um, so when I go into a company, I will tell you, I am never the most popular girl in the, in the room. Um, and <laughs> right. You guys have known me for a long time. I'm kind of likable, but when I'm at a carrier, when I'm at a company, they don't like me because well, you're I, looking for problems. Exactly. Exactly. And I will tell you, I've never been to a company where I didn't find problems. Um, and it might just be something simple, like they didn't send out notifications or something. But really, this is, the, is what I tell everybody when I'm in the company is this is for the betterment of your company because you're doing these operations daily and you lose sight of these kind of minuscule things. So I'm coming at it from a fresh perspective and with a fresh set of eyes and just saying, hey, wait a second, here's where you need to improve. Here's some here's some gaps in your process. So it's not it's not intended to be punitive. It's really intended for the betterment of the, of the organization and the marketplace as a whole. Um, but I, it, that's, it's a hard sell when I'm in comp- companies because yeah, you're right. I'm trying, I'm, I am trying to find things. I'm trying to break their systems. Um, but it's really so they can build better systems. And I'll just add to that. It's, it's like getting a letter from the IRS that says, we want to audit your tax return, but we're here to help you. Right. That's right. not, <laughs> Nobody wants to hear from the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, no, honestly, it, it's their auditors. They're looking for errors. They're not looking for things that are done right. They're looking for errors. That's their job. Um, and, and really, the hard part of their job is trying to determine, because everybody makes errors. We're human. It's just a fact of life, right? It's really, is it an intentional error? Did the company intentionally do this? Is it willful? Or is it just somebody made a mistake? And, and most good regulators will, will differentiate. Hey, you know, just this is an honest mistake that somebody made. It, it happened three times. It's not a big deal versus this company intentionally went out there and marketed this product in a way that shouldn't have been marketed against the rules. They knew the rules, um, but they ignored them anyways. And, and, and those are different different outcomes. And, and to, to Holly's point, look, at nobody likes to be audited as a company. But to the extent they point out something we're doing wrong, we want to fix it. It, it, it. You know, we want to do the right thing. And that's what good companies do. That's what really good companies do. What we find is it becomes a partnership. When we go into companies and they don't give us information or they're not forthcoming with the questions or the, the, the data that we request, that's a big red flag immediately. And we recognize that there's probably problems that they know about. But a lot of times, you know, honestly, most companies are good and most companies are trying to do the right thing. And when we find a problem, of the time, the companies did not know that problem existed and they work very hard directly with us to fix the problem or to, you know, we'll work with them on a corrective action plan and say, well, here's what needs to happen. Um, But for the most part, it really truly is a partnership and a really odd partnership, but it really is a partnership. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think, I I think you guys have touched on a couple of things that I kind of want to tie up and from my perspective talk about is that. I, I started in our compliance, the department that handles most of our compliance in 2007. 
And so I, I think since then, and probably even more so in the last 10 years in particular, uh, we've seen a, a really strong movement toward market conduct being more collaborative and there being an acknowledgement that yes, this is, this is a human business that people make mistakes and it is looking for those intentional deceptive um, violations, right? Not, not the mistakes, not the, oops, this was programmed wrong or, oh, there was a typo on our manual pages or, or things like that, where I think for a long time, that's how regulation was viewed. And now we've ultimately gotten to a place where, where it is looking for that intention, looking for the malice and, and then just correcting the other mistakes that are made as we go. Yeah, absolutely. And you're seeing a lot more collaboration, Brie, on at the state level where states are working more closely together also. Absolutely. It's not beneficial to have a 50 state exam, like 50 states coming in to, to Lee's company 50 di- at 50 different times. So states are more collaborative and, and deferring to each other more often and actually working cl- more closely together to help companies, to help correct, uh, you know, any, any fallacies that you see or any problems that you see. So states have become a lot more collaborative also, which I think is beneficial to everyone. Yeah, and this is where, as as we get toward the end of things, I'm going to give a shameless plug to AICP. Um, we, you know, we're we're doing this podcast because we're all a part of AICP. We have been a part of it for years, and we understand the value of it. I think one of the biggest things that the organization has been able to facilitate is breaking down those barriers between the industry and the regulators, and between regulators and getting them talking and collaborating more because. We give the the forum to them that is intentionally for that purpose. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, I think we've forgotten to mention that the illustrious Lee Davidson is uh, is a past president of AICP. <laughs> it's a great organization, been around uh, a long time, and it, and it serves a very useful purpose, right? And that collaboration it allows people to not it allows regulators to come together and share ideas. It allows the industry to come together and share ideas, and it allows regulators and industry to get together and share ideas. And and collaboration, you know, this world could use a lot more of it. Absolutely, one hundred percent. So I want to close up by thanking you both again very, very much for joining me in a conversation, representing yourselves and AICP. Um, I, I can't thank you guys enough. You are both very dear friends of mine. You are respected colleagues of mine, and I just appreciate the heck out of you. Hey, well, thank you so much for inviting us. This was fun, and I, you know, it's always it's always a great conversation. So I, I'm so excited to have participated. Now, Holly, Bree, this has been awesome. You know, thanks for the invite, and thanks for uh, listening to me. Thank you very much.